Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. This morning, we're going to be reading James chapter 1, and our text this morning is verses 26 and 27. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. James writes in verse 26, he says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we're thankful this morning again for the gift of your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. God, and what a word we need to hear this morning. We are not here to play religious games. So God, we invite you to to shake that up a little bit to invade this space now, and by your spirit, would you speak to us and lead us to be the kind of people that orient our lives and our habits in such a way that before you, it's pure and undefiled, God. So Lord, we ask that you'd bless now this, this time as we now study your word. I pray that you would take whatever I have and use it in a way that I can't. Um, I ask that you would speak through me and that you would give us as your people ears to hear what you want to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, it might make sense to you, but uh, nonetheless, I want to preach this morning from the topic, how to be, excuse me, let's clear out, there it is, how to be religious. How to be religious. You don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder, do you consider yourself to be a religious person? Maybe you've been accused of that before. Has that happened to you? Maybe you've shared your faith or someone identified your faith before, and they're like, oh, that's really cool for you, but not me. I'm not religious like you are. Now, let me just stop for a moment before we even dive into this and just take some time to clarify a few things. I think this idea of Christianity being a religion or not? And is a Christian supposed to be religious or not? This might be one of the most confusing ideas right now, I think, in the church. I think this is a concept that's kind of tangled up. And I think the tangling is a mixture of multiple definitions. Are you following me? This is a word, religion, that has come to mean a lot of different things in our day and age. And so, you know, for example, if someone were to ask you, are you religious? I don't know about you, but I feel like the best response that I feel a lot is to go, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? If by religious, do you mean that I just blindly adhere to tradition and superstition? Like, do I rub rabbit's feet and not walk under ladders inside or something? And also I'm a Christian? No, that, no I'm not that. I'm not blindly Religious, okay? I, you know, I, I'm against that sort of nacho libreism, all right? That science and religion, they can't go together. No, I'm not that. I'm not that. Or if by religious, are you religious, do you mean what has come to mean that you have to make the best attempt as possible to earn God's love? 
by being good enough. In most cases, it's making sure that at the end of your life, your good works outweigh all the bad that you've done, sort of like earning credit with God. That has come to be probably the more modern version of religion that you've heard, that I've heard. This idea of religion really being this unsuccessful attempt for man to reach God. And we know that's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not man's unsuccessful attempt to reach God, but the Christian faith is about God's successful attempt to reach man through his son Jesus. He's got a pretty good success rate, doesn't he? And that's the gospel. That's Christ. Now, that's not the religious sort of mindset that I would have. So am I religious? Well, what do you mean? Here's a better question. What does James mean? I'm, I'm kind of confused. What, what's going on there? Because I was raised and I've heard my whole life that, well, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. But then you look in the Webster's Dictionary and you look at a basic definition of what a religion is. You look at the word, actually, James uses here, a Greek word, threskos, and it means this. An organized system of beliefs and practices that are centered around worshiping God. Listen, I believe this. I believe that a lot has been done in the name of Jesus. Under the guise of Christian religion, that has caused a lot of us to question, is this even worth it? There's been a lot of, for a long time, I think, in the church, a sort of relationless theology, right? You have maybe a God who just wants you to do things for him. He doesn't really want to be known by you. Or you have a church environment where it's really hard to connect and, and be loved, but also be known because they have these strict rules that you got to adhere to in order to be accepted. Don't get me wrong. I, I certainly have seen and experienced Christianity without relationship. That, that's actually what James begins by saying. He talks about a kind of religion that he just calls useless. Man, I, I don't know about you. I've experienced my fair share of wasteless, useless, vain religious activity. But I love that James doesn't tell us to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Like, there's broken families out there. Does that mean, therefore, I'm not about families, man? It's just not my thing. There's definitely broken governments out there. Maybe you go, yeah, that's why I'm an anarchist. Okay. Well, certainly that would be inconsistent to have that kind of thinking when it comes to the Christian faith. Okay. Um, here, I think, would be a more accurate expression of the, Christ, of, of the Christian faith. Uh, Christianity is a religion that centers around relationship. That's the difference. You see, in Scripture, there's no shying away from that. James is talking about being a Christian and having what he calls a kind of pure and undefiled religion. That's the goal. The goal isn't let's throw out religion altogether. It's like this word religion. It's almost like, a, it's like Batman. Like to some people, it's a villain. To other people, it's a hero. And we're not really sure where to put it. See, Christianity is a relationship-driven religion. It's a relationship with the living God. It's not your works to earn his love. It's his works that display his love. And it's engaging with that God. And it's doing that together. Let's, again, let's look at this definition. An organized system of beliefs and practices that are centered around worshiping God. That's what James is talking about here. He's talking about the external expression in regards to the divine. And specifically, he's writing to Jews who were very 
devout in their religion. We know that this was, this was um, Paul, certainly Paul's testimony as an individual who he said, man, when it came to my religion, I was like the LeBron of my religion, okay? Some of you guys are LeBron haters, sorry. Um, I was like the Brady of my religion. That means something different to everyone. Oh, were you? That's not a good thing. No. <laughs> what, what Paul is saying, he says this in Philippians 3, he goes, man, I was as religious as they get in his practice. But Paul goes on to describe that his religion, he counted it all as lost because it was void of relationship with God. And so James is helping us, I think, get there. He's, he's comparing uh, almost these two kinds of religion. He calls one useless religion. Useless. It contains the outward form of spirituality. It comes to church. It says all the right things. It knows all the right answers. It has all the right verses. It knows how and when to smile and when to look spiritual. But it's useless. It's void. It's empty. It has no substance. There's a verse in 2 Timothy 3 that's kind of frightening. It describes an age in the church where there will be a large form of godliness, but a lack of power. Sometimes I wonder, we were talking about that this morning, even in our pre-service meeting, like, man, can't we get so comfortable to the form of religion that we actually, we don't even need God's spirit? We've got the right lights, we've got the right sounds, we've got the right jokes. It's a form without a substance. It's useless. Now, again, what James leads us to is not to say, well, then it's not a religion, you know, kind of anti-establishment, anti-institutional. No, it's still this organized system of beliefs and practices, but is it pure and undefiled before God? Does God look on it and say, that's my kind of religion? That's the kind of religion that I look at and I go, it's not been corrupted by man. It's not religion that's been tainted by preferences. It's heartfelt worship. It's truly following Jesus. That's what James is getting us, I think, to observe. He's getting us to evaluate and to consider even our own lives. How do I think about my own religion? And maybe if that's a kind of a stumbling block for you, just thinking about, think about in your own life the full body of your faith and what it looks like. That's what he's saying here. What, what does the system and the habits of your faith, how does it look before God? We all have our own definitions of what's religious. Certainly from the outside. Doesn't culture have their own definitions of what's religious? Um, I kind of created a small list here. Maybe you've been a victim to these thoughts. But uh, you might be religious, according to culture, if you attend church on Sunday on Sundays, rather, that, that, that aren't Christmas or Easter. So you're all religious, high religious people. Uh, you might be religious if you have some sort of jewelry or emblem, even, on your car in the shape of a fish. You might be religious if your business is closed on Sunday. Now, every other day of the week, we're like, Chick-fil-A, man, the Sabbath, they're just, you know, they're Sabbathing. And then on Sunday, though, it's like, you're, they're vile. They're, why are they doing that? But... Religious. How about this one? You might be religious if you say grace, your family, or probably your father says grace before meals. Now, here's a caveat, ready? You might be, extra credit, you might be extra religious if he does it in public places. <laughs> religious. As a kid, this was like one of my, I still have, I feel like, 
anxiety when I think about being a nine-year-old and the loud reverberating prayers my dad would say at Olive Garden. And it would, ter- it would terrify me as a kid. I was just like, Dad. And I love because the waitress would always come up and my dad would just pray louder, you know. And we'd pray for our, I'd be like, hi, you know, have more breadsticks, please, you know. Religious, religious. You know, that's maybe cultures, the cultural ideas of what makes someone religious. But what James starts by saying is that we all have our own affirmations and self-confirmations of what we think makes us spiritual. Maybe we don't even realize them. But we've all adopted, he even says that in the first verse, right? If anyone thinks he is religious, I'm pretty religious. In other words, I'm doing this Christian thing right. And what James is doing is he's confronting that. Because God wants us to do this following Jesus thing right. Amen? He doesn't want us to waste any more time with useless religious games. There's no wonder. In this generation, you have what's called the rise of the religiously unaffiliated. Have you heard of this? The rise of the religiously unaffiliated. Um, The religiously unaffiliated, this is from Pew Research, now accounts for nearly one quarter of Americans. Now, notice this. Since the early 1990s, this group has tripled in size. So more and more when people apply for jobs, apply for schools, whatever it is they're applying for, and there is on that form your religious preference. In just a couple decades, in our nation, it's tripled the amount of people who say, no religion. No, no thanks. And listen, I, I know that there is an enemy that pushes people away from the love of God. But I also know that the enemy can use Christians to do that. And he has used Christians to do that. Um, you know, it's already hard enough as someone who's running from the things of God to have an open ear to the things of God. It's even harder when Christians stand even more in the way of that. And I've had those cringy moments before where I'm like, oh, like people I love and I wish I could go into their Facebook or something and like delete all their, I don't know. Like, I'm not picking on anybody in this room. I just want to say that. But, and it just grieves me. There's already enough stumbling blocks for people to get to Jesus. Let's never be one. And that's what James is saying. The, the goal is that God wants us to do this thing right. He wants to use our lives. He wants us to operate in what he calls a sort of pure and undefiled religion. And he gives a few characteristics of it. And believe it or not, it has nothing to do with saying grace in public spaces. It has nothing to do with how high you raise your hands. That's a big one. I, you got the postures down. Some of us are like, first grade, we just do this. Some of you, you're like, I got a question, Lord, answer it, you know? Um, and, you know, these were, he, none of that, none of our sort of man-made, Colossians 3 actually talks about self-imposed religion. He gives three characteristics. The first one he gives about pure and undefiled religion, an organized system of beliefs and practices that are centered around worshiping God in a way that's pure and undefiled. The first thing we see is this idea of sincerity. Sincerity. I like how he starts by saying what pure and undefiled religion isn't. He says it's someone who who thinks they're religious, but all they ever do is talk about it. 
They don't bridle their tongue, he says. They're just kind of everywhere. They go, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. God bless you. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. They know all the phrases. They're verbally religious, but he says, but there's this deception going on. What they're saying is actually not at odds with what's in their heart. They're insincere. A lack of sincerity. I found this out about the word sincerity. Maybe you've heard this. It's kind of folk tradition, but in Latin, the word sincere, it comes from two words. You've heard this before? Without wax. Without wax. What does it mean to be sincere? It means to be without wax. In that day and age, in that culture, if you were a, an entrepreneur, you, had a, you were a businessman, and you had a product to sell in the marketplace, you would use wax as an instrument to polish and to cover all the blemishes of your product. And so much so that when you would do that, you would, you would hide any of the imperfections that were in that pot so that it could be sold. So much so on the other hand, because that authentic product was so valuable, people didn't want to buy things with wax, which by the way, come on, we've all done that. Like if you ever sold anything online before, don't look at me like you haven't put wax all up on that thing, that antique couch. I did it, like I had sold it, was trying to sell an antique couch, ended up in the couch of the Solid Waste Authority. But um, I remember taking the picture, and I was like, no, I got to get a look, fix the light a little bit. It, was a, it made it look a little less blemished, right? We kind of made it look a little nicer than it was in reality, which doesn't make sense because when someone's going to come by it, they're actually going to show up and get it and be like, that doesn't look like the picture, so have a good day, <laughs> you know? Or can I have five bucks for it? Okay, fine, you know, that's usually what happens. But. Now, in the marketplace, that this was such a high priority. People didn't want to buy hypocritical items, so they would post on their product, or or rather, sincere, sincere. This is a sincere product. It's without wax. It's not trying to hide what's really there. It's honest. How many people are so turned off from religion because of this issue? Because of people who say a lot of things. And listen, there's one kind of hypocrisy that's like, I say this and I do this. At the end of the day, like, I think that's a cheap shot. You guys talk about being good and you're not good. It's like, well, no one is. Come on. Like, the message of the gospel is not, you know, come in here and you become a better you. You know, it's not that. It's we need God's grace. So I've heard it said before, you know, that church is full of hypocrites. And the best way to reply is, hey, we got room for one more. Come on in. Get in here. Yeah, I mean, that kind of hypocrisy, that's kind of a cheap shot. But there is a kind of hypocrisy that Jesus would speak to a lot. And it's this kind of hypocrisy that dresses up what's on the inside with this persona of spirituality. The Pharisees, he called them whitewashed tombs in their religion. Outwardly, they were clean. Outwardly, they had it together. But inwardly, he called them, they were, they were filled with dead man's bones. Not sincere. This is one of the things that Paul characterized his ministry with. In 2 Corinthians 1, I think this is really interesting. Paul says this. Here's our boasting. Paul goes, listen, this is the thing that we can brag about. There's one thing that we're going to boast in. It's that the testimony of our conscience, this, we could say this with a clear conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Paul says, if there's one thing, listen, I, I don't have a perfect ministry, all right? We don't have a perfect success rate. Not everybody comes forward to our altar calls. We don't always get it perfectly. But if there's one thing, Paul says, when you look at my ministry, if there's one thing that can characterize my ministry, it's that I was honest. 
I, I was sincere. When I had weaknesses, I let you know about them. When I was struggling, I was real about it. I, I was without wax. This is what we are all, first and foremost, this is certainly what the world is longing for when they look on at the church. Um, authenticity. Like, re- just be real. Well, I'm kind of struggling in, in my faith, but I don't want to vocalize that. Because I don't want people to think that I'm not like a warrior of faith. It's, you know, sometimes it takes more faith, to be honest with that. Or, you know, I, I'm struggling with this particular area of sin over and over again, and you know, I'm, I just, you know, the people in my church, they don't struggle with this sin. And so I'm kind of bound, so i got to sort of be insincere, and I have to act like everything's okay, and hopefully I can do this on my own. And Listen, it's not just the world that needs us to be authentic. Guys, we need each other to be authentic. One of the worst, one of the worst things we can do to this community is cover our brokenness. Why? You know, Paul, no, James says, it's useless. And it's, it's, it's deceptive because it feels useful, doesn't it? Now, it may be. It may be useful to hide. It may be a way for you to live in your shame, but it's not useful to set you free. It's not useful to be used by God to lead someone else into the comfort that you've experienced. It's the illusion of usefulness, insincerity, a lack of authenticity. You know, I, and here's what I get. I want to say this. You know, I, I think we beat this drum a lot. And I realize that it's not going to happen overnight. I just want to say this. I think I've been hearing some really cool things about our communities becoming environments where we, we can be, that's really where it's going to happen, right? When we're like in proximity and relationship with each other, and we can start to be honest about where we're at and how we feel and what we're struggling with and what's hurting in our hearts. But, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. The people that know the most about you are people that you've invested relationship with. And let that just be an encouragement for us to commit to this thing, man. This, this takes time. We're not talking about like a quick fix, a couple months. You know, some of you guys, you have that bone in your body where you are like too sincere. You show up and be like, hi, nice to meet you. You know what I struggle with? Like, that's cool too. I love that. You know, you're worshiping. You're like, I don't know if I barely believe in God right now. But this is great. It's like, that's cool. That honesty is cool, but it takes time. So I like to think of it as like a rhythm. I want it to be a culture in our church that we're, we're not the kind of people that look down and we condemn brokenness. We don't kick people when they're down because we know Jesus has lifted us up. And so when people come to us and say, this is what I'm struggling with, we consider the words of Galatians 6.1. Listen, you who are spiritual, if anyone around you is overtaken in a trespass, they're, they're overcome by sin, there's a brokenness that they unveil. They say, this is what I'm struggling with. You who are spiritual, we need to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. That's a culture of grace. That's a culture that says there is no advice that we could ever give each other that we ourselves don't desperately need to hear. Let's get away from this idea like we have levels and tiers. Like, I know I'm on a, literally a different physical level, but there is, there's never been a sermon that the Lord has allowed me to preach in this church that didn't wreck my life, that, that didn't come straight into my ears from heaven. There is nothing I could or you could, we could ever say. We are all in this together. This is what God has said. Come as you are. 
broken as you may be, come to me. Come together. Come struggling together. And I'm the one that's going to give you rest. Don't buy into the illusion that you got to be insincere, that you got to cover up your brokenness. It takes time. We commit to this thing, but over time, as we start to be honest about what hurts and what's wounded, we can actually be healed. That's when healing happens. That's when the gospel comes to bear. That's when the spirit of God starts to work. Amen? Let's be that kind of church. Sincere. That's religion, according to God. Religion isn't the show of how much, okay, am I good? Hey, good morning. It's honest. It's honest. The words match the heart, saying what you mean and meaning what you say. The second thing that James draws our attention to is not just sincerity, but the second thing he draws us to is charity, to charity. He says in the next verse, he says, pure and undefiled religion before God is this. He starts with this, to visit, notice this, orphans and widows in their trouble. Now, so far, nothing here about a church building, nothing here about worship postures and positions, nothing here about posting on you know, Christian verses on your Instagram or faith. Like, religious so far is about sincerity, being honest. And now he's saying, here's religion from God's perspective. It has to do with charity, charity. Now, maybe in your head you think of charity and you think of like St. Jude's uh, Hospital, Children's Hospital. Maybe you think of like kind of that modern charity. But the word charity is actually the old King James um, translation of one of the most famous passages of Scripture on agape love. Agape love, the love of God. That's 1 Corinthians 13. Um, agape love in the King James Version, that old King James, that thou and these and thou stuff. It says this in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, though I speak with the tongues of men... And of angels, but have not charity. In the Greek, agape, the love of God, the unconditional love of God. I am becoming a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Isn't that interesting? How you can be charitable and lack charity? I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I even, listen to this, none of us have done this. I give my body to be burned and have not charity. It profits me nothing. Without love, without love. That's where James is getting at now. Um, True religion, pure and undefiled religion before God, and he loved this, he says, and the Father. He's the Father. He wants us to remember that for a reason here, right? He says, it's not just what you can articulate about the love of God, but the greatest evidence that you have been impacted by the love of God is your ability by his spirit to love others. And this is the unavoidable truth of scripture that we are always going to have to difficultly come back to because of, um, you know, I guess what it reminds us about ourselves and how how much of a long way we have to go. Uh, This usually happens to me. I'm usually like, man, Lord, I'm... I'm growing. I'm growing. I'm all right. Got a church, you know, church and preaching. You know. And then you read a verse. You read First John, and in First John, you read things like, "He who does not love, does not know God." And you read verses that say, like, "He who says he knows God but hates his brother is a liar." And we love, we, right? We, in our religion, we want, like, love to be over there. We'll get there. But here's, like, God, me. And, and God doesn't let us 
um, separate the love we have for him, the love he has for us, and the love that we have genuinely, sincerely for each other and for every other person who's been made in his image. Um, so it's what John says. We know John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave, but 1 John 3.16, the other John 3.16, says, by this we know love. Here's what we know what love is. Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Which It's coincidental. We have Valentine's Day coming up this week. You're welcome, husbands, just reminding you. Um, boyfriends, too. Fiancés. Um, single men, hello. <laughs> Help you out, too. It's a day that we are seeking to celebrate love that we have with each other. And really, Valentine's Day is such a cultural, simple cultural expression. It's a sermon of what the human race is desperately longing for. It's to know love. To really know love. And the saying goes, we often find ourselves looking for it in all the, what, all the wrong places. And this is important for us. because I think in the church we do the same thing too. We have our own standards of what love looks like. This is love. You know, God just gave me the gift of tough love. That's me. It's like, no, you're just kind of mean. <laughs> love, it, love is kind. Sometimes, on the other hand, it's, it's hypocritical because you don't speak the truth. Romans 12.9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. Sometimes it's fake love. Sometimes it's brutal love. Nonetheless, we do this in the church too. We're looking for love. What, is, what does love really look like? And I love what John tells us. He says, this is how we know what love looks like. Jesus laid down his life for us. He sacrificed. He gave up something. It wasn't about his feelings. We know what he felt. He'd said, he said to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if there's any way for this not to happen, please, but not my will, your will be done. The surrender and the submission to sacrifice in the name of love. And that's the standard for husbands, isn't it? Love your wives like that, as Christ gave himself for the church. That's how we know love. It's not primarily a feeling. It can be felt. But it's foundationally a decision, a choice to sacrifice. And, and he says this, and we also ought to love the same way we've been loved. By this we know love. Look what he did for me. And we ought, it should produce the same kind of love. So verses like 1 Corinthians 13 remind us that true spiritual maturity is not in what we know. It's not in what we do. It's how we love. You've heard Galatians 5, 23, which is the fruit of the Spirit, which describes the primary fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. The work of the Spirit in our life, it's going to look like love. That's what it's going to look like. It's kind of like, and it's the first one listed. I kind of think of it like if you have a product at home or something you bought at the grocery store. If you look at the ingredients, right, the thing that's listed first is the most valuable, the, the most highest volume ingredient. And the first thing that Paul lists when it comes to the work of the Spirit is, is love. So, so it's in how we love others, and that's where James leads us to. A person who has been impacted by the love of God through Christ is going to inconvenience themselves for the sake of loving others. Someone who's encountered, listen, the gospel that though we were slaves and rebelled against God in our sin, God, 
gave up his son so that we could be his children. And we who were once orphans have now received what the Bible calls the spirit of adoption. And now God is my father. He's my dad. By which we cry out, the Bible says, Abba, Father, Papa, Dad. And those who have encountered that and have encountered the Father's love are going to start to share in his heart. And he talks about two specific demographics, two kinds of people, orphans and widows. Both cases, dad is not there. The father is not there. And I love the way that he describes our ministry to them. He says, pure religion looks like visiting orphans and widows in their trouble. Isn't that not what God did for us, right? Isn't that not what the gospel is? Not, hey, come up here, get it together, fix your trouble, and then come know me. But God entered history. God visited us in our trouble through the person of Jesus to pull us out, to to become a father to us. And he's saying, charity is going to be the fruit of you experiencing that. You're going to look and prayerfully go, God, how can we take care of those in need? Um, orphans and widows, a great priority on his heart. I know of some awesome stories in this church of, of families that have followed this call, specifically what the Spirit's put on their life, whether it's through fostering, um, adopting. I think of sweet Isabel uh, from the Gregory family. You know, It's being available to God is what this is. It's being available to God and go, God, I'm not going to live in my little comfortable Christian religious bubble. I want to go where you are. I want to be where your heart is. And there's something about this. There's something about the blessings that God pours out on a life that says, God, take my agenda and give me yours. Something that happens. God, I'm not going to use my business for my own selfish gain. Take my agenda. I want your kingdom agenda. God, I'm not going to raise my family according to my own agenda. There's something that happens when a church, when a church like Solus goes, God, give us your agenda. Shepherd us, pastor us, lead us, let us follow you. And God will pour out his blessing on that. You know, one of the worst things that God could do is pour out his blessing on anything else. You know, maybe that's why God has been withholding what you've been praying for, because it's your agenda. He says, here's my heart. Here, orphans and widows. And the idea is get uncomfortable. Be used for the purpose of God. There's nothing more fulfilling than that. What a great calling to live that way, to live a life of charity, to get out of the four walls of the church, to get out of the bubble, and like God, who is a missionary, to reflect him to this world. And then the last thing he says is he talks about purity. So we have sincerity without wax, authentic, honest, not hiding our brokenness. We have charity, which is a fruit of the Spirit, the primary fruit of the Spirit. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, charity is the best measurement for spiritual growth, displayed in ultimately God sending his son Jesus, us encountering that love and that driving us with compassion to go bring him as a father to the fatherless. And then he says, this is an interesting and I think a valuable um, complimentary thought that he gives at the end of verse 27. He says, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Sincerity, charity, and now he describes purity. Purity. He describes a discipline in life to, and I like the the way he describes it, to keep oneself unspotted. Unspotted. Now, we know that the message of the gospel is that Jesus was unspotted. Amen? Amen. He was tempted, Hebrews 4 tells us, he was tempted in all points as we are, 
yet without sin. When he stood before Pilate, Pilate said, I find what? No fault in him. Behold, the Lamb of God, the spotless, blameless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The scriptures also teach that we, we are spotted, that we are blemished, that we, like Jesus, are not white in our own purity. The good news of the gospel is that this Jesus who was unblemished and was perfect, he went and he willingly gave up his life on a cross. He died. And as he was dying, the Bible teaches that he took upon himself our spots, our sin. The scriptures say it this way, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. We're saved by grace through faith. We trust in what Jesus has done on the cross. The fact that he also has been risen and raised to the right hand of the Father. And what happens is Jesus takes my filthy garments. He takes my, my blemished robe. And he gifts me his white hot purity. He makes me pure. I love what he said to the disciples in John 15, 3. He said, you are already clean because of the words which I have spoken to you. This is, I think, an important element of the gospel that we miss. You know, I think a lot of times we can focus in on the debt that Jesus paid. We, we take the bread and we remember he paid my debt. But it's also the blood that Jesus shed. First John tells us this, that if we confess our sins, First John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins to God, if we say, Lord, I admit before you that I have sinned, that I am blemished, that I have sin spots all over me, if we are honest about that with God, the Bible says that, he is faithful, and he is just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us clean. How many of us have experienced the gospel in that way? Not only are you forgiven, but you're clean. Not just for the sins you've committed, but even the sins that have been committed against you. Jesus took that too. Clean. Clean before him. Now, as believers... James says, as those who have been made clean, it's now a call to walk in purity. How we walk doesn't determine our standing with God. That's based on what Jesus did. But it's this call that he gives to remain, to keep yourself unspotted from the world. It's an echo, isn't it, from Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, it's your reasonable service. It just makes sense. God gave up his son for us, so we say, God, here's my life. You gave up all of your life, here's my life, and do not be conformed to this world. Some translations say the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So I'm going to help someone out today. Okay? Some of you guys have been praying, and you've been wondering, God, what is your will for my life? I got an answer for you. The Lord spoke to me for you out of Romans 12, and he said, it is my good, it is my acceptable, and it is my perfect will for your life, for Andrew's life, that I not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but that I be transformed by the renewing of my mind. That's, that's what God does. He accepts us as we are, but he loves us so much that he transforms our lives. 
And he starts to reorient us to be those that are not conformed any longer to the patterns of the world, right? We know the patterns of the world, the lust of the flesh, 1 John 2, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I no longer orient myself around the things of this world because I have been saved and rescued for a different world. And so I'm now experiencing transformation. God wants to transform my life, not have me be conformed to this world. Maybe you can look at your life right now and evaluate where are some areas of my life where I'm, I'm not experiencing transformation. I'm not being transformed because I'm being conformed. How I spend, how I save my money, how I go about my relationship, how I go about my relationships with my neighbors. The goal of, of mission, right? The goal of being Christians, I think, is having a nice balance of, verse, of the two sections there in verse 27. Today, it seems, like, it seems like you have this big divide. And often it's like charity is often pitted against purity or the other way around. You, have a lot of, you can actually look at churches today and it's often like more dose of one rather than the other. You have a lot of churches and they're very charitable. Let, let's say that they're noble in the sense that they are on mission. They're in the world. They're engaging their neighbors. But as they're seeking to reach their community, their community is reaching them. They become conformed in their mission. So, so they're not condemners of culture. They're in culture. That's a good thing. They're on mission. But the compromise is they start to look like the people they're trying to, to reach. Not in the good ways. On the other hand, you have another side of this that they love the end of verse 27. They're like, yeah, don't be unspotted from the world. Get away from those people. And that's the problem. Those people. That's the, that's the problem there, right? Unlike me. And those people that you are seeking to avoid, it's almost like we treat sinners like, um, like sick, contagious people. We're like, oh, hi, come to church with me. Nope, back up. Come to church, holy environment, okay? And we kind of keep people who aren't Christians at arm's length, and we condemn them for the life that they're living. Um, and James says it's a healthy balance, and you've heard this idea before, and it comes from John 14. This is what Jesus prayed for his church. He said, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because, notice this, they are not of the world. This is just true. This is not our home. We are citizens, the Bible says, of heaven. Yet, just as I am not of the world, he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So, so we've heard this idea before, right? In but not of. A lot of Christians, they are in, and the problem is that they're also of. On the other hand, you have a lot of believers who they're not of, but they're not in. They're not on mission. So what God is calling us to is a life of love that's marked by holiness. Let's be those kinds of people. That's religion. We are on mission. We are living in love. We are bringing the gospel. But as we bring the gospel, we have to make sure that we're letting our light so shine before man. That they see the transformation in our life and they go, there's something about you. You're not conformed. You've been transformed. What is that? That's where James wraps this big idea up. And I, I think it's important with the, the specific language he uses, keep oneself unspotted from the world. You know? In other words, it's going to require some focus. Like our natural default, my natural default, is not to, um, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. My natural default is when things are going stressful in my life, I start to freak out like the world does. I'm just really good at it, naturally. I'm a, I'm a pro at being, it seems to be sometimes, conformed to the patterns of this world. And so James says it's going to take some focus. 
He says you got to keep yourself unspotted. The idea is you got to maintain it. It's almost like maybe you've had this before where you had a brand new pair of shoes, right? And they are crispy clean. They are white. They are dang Daniels. You know what I'm saying? Millennials got that. Okay. They are, that means really clean and white, okay? They are really nice shoes. And, and you go outside, and, and it's kind of rainy, and it's like, okay. And so you do the thing where you do that awkward walk, you know, because you don't want to get anything on it. Now, this is me with coffee. Like, I was talking to Tim about this earlier. For some reason, I, it's a problem, too, because I drink a lot of coffee. But coffee loves to be all my face and all my shirt. It just loves to be there. And recently, I was, I was just telling Tim this story. I, had, I remember one time, right before I was preaching in youth ministry, I had a young guy come up behind me, and I was holding a hot cup of coffee, and he did like one of those bro-behind-the-back hugs, but he like fist-punched the coffee all over my face and my body. <laughs> it was like a baptism of coffee. It was horrible. And it's, you know, that was a, definitely a freak scenario, but this happens all the time. Brittany's like, looks, and she, she, it's like my natural default is to get those spots. It's to get those stains, and we have to realize that, listen, our natural default our natural default is to subconsciously, almost in a sub, it's like subterranean, it's deep down in our hearts. We don't always see it coming, but we naturally slip into patterns that we're like, how did I get here? How did that spot get there? And James, it's almost like he's saying it's going to require a sense of desperation. There's got to be this openness in our hearts before God that says, Lord, help me by your spirit. Remind me of what you've done for me. Help me as I'm in this world, God, set me free so I don't have to be of this world. And it's when those things start to happen. I, I think this is where certainly we want to condemn different kinds of religious ideas. But for the most part, the culture we're in has heard a lot of the religious messages we have. There's been blockbuster movies made about the gospel. And there's the, there's the power of the gospel. It needs to be proclaimed. But I think what is really going to do us as a community really good and what is going to advance the purposes of the kingdom here in South Florida is for us to adopt a new way to be religious. No more hiding our brokenness, thinking that's religion, that's useless. We want to be authentic. We want to be real. We're not going to have wax covering our blemishes. Jesus accepts us this way. We can be the way that he accepts us. We're not going to be those that just spend all our time getting to know concepts about God. To know God is to be transformed by his love in such a way that you start to love the people around you. You start to inconvenience yourself to go out of your way to visit people in their trouble just as God visited you in your trouble. And as we do that, the Spirit of God is making us holy. He's transforming our lives. That's how to be religious according to God's perspective. That's religion that's pure and undefiled. Amen? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulischurch.com.